Welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Losses Weekly Podcast with me, Colin Lambert, Manager of PL. Um, I have to say this week we are not going with a guest because frankly it's been one of the busier weeks of news we've had in recent times. Um, there's been a heck of a lot happening, so we thought we'd just quickly run through well, quickly. This will be a an extended version of that was the week that was. So where to start? Well, I guess um there's a couple of related items that we could look at. Um, the Global Foreign Exchange Committee reported on their, had a press conference on their meeting that was, took place on Monday, um, a teleconference. <clears throat> and what was interesting to me was that for the first time in their public utterances, um, the phrase fix came into the, uh, into the lexicon. So the uh, press release that they put out specifically mentioned the um, need for, they call it WM Reuters, but what we are actually talking about is, um, of course, the Refinitiv benchmarks, um, the need for them to be more outgoing and more public, maybe more proactively engaged with the broader industry than they currently are at the moment. Now, um, coincidentally, and this was totally coincidentally, um, we published at Profit and Loss a interview with the head of Refinitiv Benchmark, Shirley Barrow, um, the same day that the GFXC reported. Um, obviously, the interview was conducted a, a couple of weeks ago, but um, nonetheless, it sort of, I guess, maybe was an interesting uh, immediate response, as in, look, we are engaging with people. I don't know what your problem is. Although I have to say, the proactivity on that engagement was very much on, on our part rather than Refinitiv's. So I thought it was interesting. And my understanding is that the GFXC is going to maintain the dialogue with WM as we go forward, um, which is great because I think we do need to understand this is a critical infrastructure. Um, whether we like it or not, and um, it's fantastic to see so many people engaging with me on the subject of the fix, some of them have slightly old school um, opinions, should we say. I honestly do not believe putting it back in the hands of the dealers is going to help anybody, not least those dealers. Um, but I think it is important that we maintain um, a discussion around this. Um, the problem, as I see it, is that um, we probably need to do more as an industry around reminding people about what goes on at the fix. So um, I'm taken with the GFXC press release. I think it was the 26th of March, just ahead of the month end. Um, in March, which we're all looking at, and you know, you'll probably remember, we were thinking to ourselves, <clears throat> this is going to be a hell of a month then, it's quarter end, year end in Japan, we saw a blowout in the Tokyo um, fix, or sort of Tokyo timestamp, um, and we got away with it in March, and I think the GFXC was playing down their role, but I think the very fact that the central banks sponsored FX committees of the world highlighted this as an issue must make the buy side sit up and pay attention about what they're doing with the hedging so that works and i think we need more like it this is not about rewriting the code which is <clears throat> i know i have a lot of ideas around how we can sort of work with the code and often you know the riposte is the same we don't want to rewrite the code and i totally get that the code is fit for purpose um but what i think we need to do is maybe say not rewrite the pros not even add examples maybe just maybe make 
the reminder on a public level you know every three months or whenever the every month whenever the gfxe meets or wants to put something out just remind people reinforce the issue of pre-hedging as a service provider a lot of people pre-hedge on the back of their disclosures and i've got a interesting story around disclosures coming up um, in one of my columns in in the coming weeks how i got last looked by an airline um but it's about more than the disclosures we need to look at it away from we need to remind market participants you are pre-hedging now you are pre-hedging for a reason why are you pre-hedging well because your analytics is telling you that actually um it's going to take an extra 10 minutes to hedge the amount of flow we got to the fix and we're talking tens of billions of dollars maybe even more on some quarter ends so there's a need to pre-edge the banks are running it through their analytics which are independent as near as they can be but they've got probably the best data set in the world because they've got their internalization engines so you're running the analytics and it's telling you you need to pre-hedge for 10 minutes well maybe we need to remind market participants that they need to wonder why we need to pre-hedge i think one of the problems with you know wm refinitive benchmarks um engagement is you know, and this is a story everyone will tell you we're not sure the buy side cares or maybe we need to just keep on reminding the buy side so a route forward for the gfxc could be um reinforcing to service providers are you talking to your um customers about their use of the fix are you saying to them look our empirical analysis means we are pre-hedging your flow on a regular basis if it is do you think that's acceptable do you think that you're actually predicting an act or creating an accurate benchmark that actually reflects the flow that goes through i suspect the the you know the, the question or the answer may be somewhat different it was also interesting to me that the gfxc said that there's more discretion being shown by managers around how they execute flows and those with discretion are moving their flow away from the fix that's another reason why we need to be talking to those that are remaining there because obviously those with discretion oftentimes would have um, offsetting flow what we end up with is a systematic people who invest systematically they index track they're very passive um, and it's worked don't get me wrong it's worked and it's a very popular strategy obviously but we inevitably seems to me end up with a greater imbalance of the flow of the fix because the discretionary those with discretions aren't there so we probably want to look at that one as well because i think it might be coming a bit more one way in how we go um now the interview i published with shirley barrow i thought was very interesting um i thought i'd give some background around my sense from the conversation um i mean it's a the article is i think and, and we do quote check and then hopefully definitive think a fair reflection of the conversation we had my sense is that there's an understanding at wm refinitive benchmarks that something needs to be looked at um you know I, I know it's raised at the oversight committee level and as shirley says in our interview you know wm is in, in does engage with the industry on an ongoing basis um 
the problem I think we have is that to engage with the industry, you need the industry to be wanting to engage. And again, to go circle back to my GFXC point, we need to make these people more aware. Now, it's very difficult if they're not listening. I totally understand that. So um, we need to look at it. It will be a slow approach, but we need to keep grinding away in my, in my mind. If Refinitive Benchmarks is going to change the fix, it's going to be slow because they have a very, very fixed process around how they do it involving consultation at various levels um, of the industry and therefore it won't be quick. That's fine. There's absolutely nothing wrong with something taking its time and being done thoroughly. Perhaps, and this maybe speaks to the GFXE's point, and I am purely speculating here, this has got nothing, the GFXE have not, did not say this, but perhaps hidden away in their message there is, if you are talking about changing the fix, maybe you should tell the world that you are changing the fix or you are investigating changing the fix window or how the fix operates. Now, I mean, there's a quote from my interview with Shirley Barrow, which basically says, um, in which she says, we are obviously aware of the current discussion around the 4 p.m. fix. And anytime there are questions over how well the benchmark is working, it is our responsibility to evaluate conditions look carefully into whether it needs greater consideration on our part. Now, um, she also said in another part of the interview, I definitely think we are at that stage now. And what has happened in markets at month ends especially, so they will evaluate. Um, because something she said to me I thought was quite striking, you know, her levels or refinitive benchmarks, collective level of concern increases the more the benchmark fix impacts on the normal function of the market dynamics. Now, it could be argued that that's happening now. Um, if it is, fair enough, maybe they can look at it. But what they should do, I think, is actually be more proactive in their messaging and say, yes, we are actively talking about this. Yes, we are doing the analysis. Or indeed, no, we are not doing any of this. Now, the problem we have is that and I'll probably go to the end of the interview with Shirley because I thought it was a, a very telling quote, which I think actually has a problem, is, is part of the problem we face in changing. Now, she says any benchmark has to be anchored in being achievable and being robust. Absolutely. Um, I believe the WM benchmark, WMR benchmark is robust. Um, and obviously it's achievable. I think my problem is, and I think a lot of people's problem is, um, is how it's achieved and what it costs to actually achieve it. She goes on to say, we had to go through a lot of steps to change and be objective in our assessment. Absolutely be driven by the data, as she stresses, and make sure that, you know, this is all stakeholders are, are, are bought into this. Um, my concern is the last line, which says, but ultimately we have to reflect the will of the market. And if change is needed, then we will implement it. This is exactly the sort of word um, noises you want from a service provider. And there's absolutely nothing wrong in, in Refinitive Benchmark's approach to that. The problem is, I believe there are times when you have to change the will of the market. Because I believe we're in a situation now where the asset owners aren't interested in the fix. Um, you talk to just about anybody, particularly in the asset management community, the, on the execution desk and the guys 
responsible for actually executing these hedges, a lot of them know that this is not the best way to execute their hedges, but the asset owners or the fiduciary oversight, whoever it may be, is just not listening because they, they're not interested. So you have a problem there. How can you reflect the will of the market when the market, when half the market is not interested in even engaging in discussion around change? Um, the other problem we have, which was brought up subtly in the interview, was that um, my sense is that uh, Refinitiv Benchmarks is struggling to get its user groups really working um, in terms of uh, the Americas and EMEA in particular. Asia Pacific understanding is working pretty well, but there's a reluctance on the part of the banks to be a part of their informal user group, which is a consulting group. It doesn't make any decisions. It literally is a forum for sharing ideas and concerns, as is you know, the regional foreign exchange committees. Now, my worry is that, and I think sadly for, for Reuters, or Refinitiv Benchmark and WM Reuters Fix, there is a stigma attached to the fix, and it started with collusion amongst dealers. So inevitably, I think the minute someone in compliant, legal and compliance hears the words sit on a um, advisory or um, cons consultative committee involving the fix with other banks, inevitably alarm bells go off. So my concern is what we have is we have the buy side not willing to engage and those on the banks not able to engage because of the stigma still associated with it. This is an environment that breeds inertia. And this is a problem with always listening to the client. Sometimes we have to lead the market. And I honestly believe this is one of those times. I think Refinitiv Benchmarks needs to look at the data. They need to look at the impact it is having. And yes, the month end is the highlight of this, but there are also opportunity costs at 4 p.m. on other days of the month. You know, it is an accident waiting to happen at any time. If the flow is slightly higher than expected, we suddenly get moves and we are getting micro moves, which I think, you know, are still important to look at. So we need to look at it. And I think we need them to engage more and maybe provide some leadership to the market on this because, you know, if 20 to 30% or more is hedged outside the window, doesn't that tell us everything we need to know? So, there's something there just to look at, if nothing else. Um, one other observation I'll probably make on this, actually, because um, I want to go back to the GFXC, um, and that is, it's interesting the GFXC raised this as an issue, because as I've pointed out, and, and I do think there is still some misreporting out there, but as I'm keen on pointing out, nobody is doing anything wrong here. There is no conduct issues around what is going on in the fix at the moment. This is not about the sell side ripping people off. They are pre-hedging with the client's approval. They could maybe be a little bit more proactive in letting the client know why they're pre-hedging and what it's costing them, but they are pre-hedging with the client's approval. People using market data to trade around what's happening in the fix are using public market data that they pay for um, woodenly, I assume. And the customer is saying, well, we get a benchmark. What's wrong with that? So this is not a conduct issue. So I thought it was interesting. It highlights how the GFXC is expanding its remits, um, as I think it was always the plan, and as I think it has to do, beyond just the FX Global Code. You know, this is a market structure issue. 
<clears throat> and it's good to see the GFXC engaging on that. Um, the other things from that meeting, I thought, was, you know, there was definitely a sense from the GFXC, um, Neil Penny and Akira Hoshino, the two vice chairs, commented, um, as did Guy DeBell, the chair, on the market functioning during the COVID peak. Um, yes, we all know there was the odd problem. Um, but generally speaking, they were satisfied the market worked well. And I think we have to say it did. And I think it also highlights how we settled down afterwards as an industry, highlights the FX markets, FX industry's ability to react well to circumstances. It's that known unknown thing again. The only thing I would say is, and I think this was also brought up by the GFXC, and again, this is not conduct related, it's more about market functioning. And there was a concern that, you know, the longer the dispersed workforce goes on, the more problems may build up and it's harder to track those problems in the current environment. So I think there's, you know, there's, there's, there's something there. You know, I think there's an issue around liquidity on Friday afternoons that maybe they might start looking at. Um, but generally speaking, I tend to agree. And I think, you know, everybody does. The FX market has handled this pretty well. Uh, one final thing from the GFX meeting, GFXE meeting, sorry, I thought was interesting. Um, and it was the sediment risk item again not conduct related but just filling in with the um the general dialogue that started with the bis trying to survey around you know nine trillion dollars worth of um fx business not being in a payment or in in cls um or similar pvp now obviously there are other netting mechanisms out there the number isn't going to be that high but again the very fact that gfxc is willing to engage with the industry and highlight that. And I think importantly, be a resource for like committees like the CPMI and Basel and you know the, the wider FSB, willing to be a resource, willing to do the work, highlights that subtle change in tack of the GFXC's approach. Um, my final thing on this point, before we um, go on to the other issues we've reported on this week, um, Got quite a bit of feedback about my column on Monday about Mark Johnson's um, submission to the Supreme Court and how I think the FX industry can um, step up again. Now, there's a bit of a defeatist attitude out there saying, well, there's nothing more we can do. It's all about legal process. <clears throat> it is to a degree, um, undoubtedly. But my understanding is if the Supreme Court agrees to hear the case, then there are opportunities to resubmit and to submit amicus briefs, i.e. information that explains to people who are non-professionals how the FX market works, how you can't buy two and a quarter billion pounds in one minute in December in 2011. Um, and also some of the understanding about how the client-bank relationship works. Um, some people, I thought, you know, is this the GFXC job? Well, I think the GFXC has done its job. It's produced the global code. And one of my criticisms of Mark Johnson's defence, um, as, I, as I understand it, is when the prosecution was going into the Wild West argument, as inevitably any regulator seems to do since the 1970s, um, they didn't literally wave this document saying, here are 55 principles that every single bank has signed up to, you know, up to a certain threshold, or down to a certain threshold. Um, this is why the industry has done what it can to protect. And look at the principles. The principles basically say, if you're pre-hedging, 
if you need to pre-hedge, you pre-hedge. You, your order has to make, you shouldn't have a negative market impact. Or, sorry, outsized market impact. So to my mind, the GFXC has done what it can. ACI did an amicus brief before. Um, my hope is they could probably renew that and refresh that. But there are other people out of the global franchise division. What does it do? What is it doing about this? It's been totally silent and it's one of its institutions and one of its members that um, is facing jail. So that's more where I'm targeting that. Um, but I do think the industry needs to be aware that there is an opportunity, perhaps, if things fall in the right way, to be able to explain once again, and hopefully on a broader scale and a clearer scale, exactly how FX markets work. Um, so on that note, we'll be back in just a second. Did you know that if you sign up before July 1st, you can subscribe to Profit and Loss for just £130 sterling for a whole 12 months? That's a huge 30% discount on your regular subscription rate. Or pay just £230 for two years. Go to www.profit-loss.com plans and sign up today. Or email info at profit-loss.com for more information to ensure that you never miss out on the latest FX news. So I want to talk about um, a couple of other things we did this week or a couple of other news items. So moving more to news here. Um, we published an interview in profitandloss.com with um, three senior members of Morgan Stanley's electronic F or EFX team, um, Melanie Christie, Matt Thomas and Thomas Rostell. Um, we were really looking at the algos and trying to get an experience for how it looked for the banks, you know, for someone at the eye of the storm. For instance, um, as, I, as I think we put it in the introduction. Um, a few interesting points from my point of view. It was um, the key takeaways for me were how the algo in the algo franchise at Morgan Stanley, client to client matching went to about 50% of flow from I think it's the mid 30s. That probably highlights the willingness of people to um, post interest in such times. There definitely seems to be more appetite for algo. The banks saw more appetite for its algos, especially those that can, um, you know, dynamically adjust to market conditions and capture spread. And I think this kind of, this really reflects the um, sense from people elsewhere that I'm getting as well. You know, initially clients went risk transfer and were kind of put off by the spreads, which I imagine you would be if I used to get in, you know, one pip wide on 20 or 30 and all of a sudden you're getting quoted, you know, 50 points wide. I imagine it would put you off to a degree. So yeah, more appetite for the algos, especially those that spread capture and can dynamically adjust to, to liquidity, to liquidity conditions. The other thing I thought it indicated was there's more trust in the analytics that are being provided. And we can loop that back to what we was, what I was saying earlier in this podcast. You know, if you have trust, more trust in the analytics, then perhaps you can trust the fact that it's telling you that the window in the fix needs to be longer or you need to execute over a longer period of time. There are algos out there that allow clients to allocate pre-hedging. Why? What is the point? What you're doing is benchmarking against the time. Make the TWAP longer. But so there's, there's more trust is what I got from the, from Morgan Stanley. More trust in, in the analytics that are being provided. Um, the other thing I thought was also important, again, this circles back to what I was saying earlier, is the use of discretion seems to be important in this. 
you know, those managers that were able to exercise some discretion over their hedging um, in terms of the timing and duration were definitely able to get a better outcome than those that had to execute systematically at a time in an amount and you know, probably in competition. Um, the, it highlights the benefit of you know, being discretionary and having an element of discretion around the execution. It's where execution desks can really add their value. Yes, they can still use algos, but they can choose how to use the algo, what algo to use, and more importantly, when to use it. Um, I think the experience of this period has also benefited the algos. Um, Melanie Christie in the interview highlights how this time could be different to 2015 post SMB um, when you know the move to algos kind of dissipated and we went back to um, you know post interest to platforms and aggregation and so on um, and I tend to agree with it I think you know this time it could be different and I think one of the reasons it could be different is again better data um, the analytics are better I think not to be overlooked as well is we also have um, independent analytics you know best x didn't exist in 2015 at least i hope it didn't my apologies to them if they did i don't think they did um but yeah these services weren't available then they are now so there are other ways to check what's going on if you needed to and i think the experience will benefit the algos again because they are highlighting look this does work um so i think we could see that the use of algos is here to stay it's been a bit of a you know grinding story this one hasn't it i mean you know how many times did Gaden and i on the podcast discuss you know this is the year of the algo and how the numbers the dial never really shifted i kind of sense that this is the the time when it does shift and the dial does stay at a higher level on the mark it won't dominate but it will i think be um, a significant moment and actually it could benefit even more if more people do move away from trading at a certain time with the fix or use a longer window um the other piece just wanted to touch on very quickly because i'm going to be covering this more in my columns in the coming week um a couple of items of interest from the platforms and isn't it funny how when banks suddenly start talking about how many connections they've got and the gfxe starts talking about anonymous trading and looking seriously into what's going on there um two platforms come out with something radically different this week i say radically different i mean i think both kind of existed it's just a nuance um cboe launched their central club now what i would say about this is i think the only real difference here is that they've taken their firm liquidity which was on a, on a relationship basis and they're putting it into an anonymous all-to-all environment um the interesting thing for me is um this could be a sign of the future because clearly cboe fx are using market data as their weapon of choice here um in the past ebs has said look you know you can if you execute a certain amount then you'll get the, the data feed um for free or for a, for a reduced fee um that was a market volume thing attracting volume and brokerage platform cboe are definitely saying no market data is our thing here so three millisecond, 10 millisecond, oh, sorry, zero, sorry, real time, three millisecond, 10 milliseconds. Um, my concern is, and there's always a concern, as you know, that, you know, they use MQLs, but if I'm, and it's in half a million, it could be in half a million base units. So if I'm kind of like an HFT sniffing around for market data and information, I could just layer two or three bids 
into the system in half a dollar or half a million euros. Um, and when they become top of book, I can cancel them immediately because they've been, they've had their MQL in there already. And I do understand that resting orders will need to be executed to get you into the, um, into the market data feed. But I just wonder if we're giving away market data a little cheaper, if it's half a million dollars of liquidity. Is that really, you know, good liquidity for end users in FX? Yeah, the retail level it is. But I think we need to consider a bit more than the retail. We're about more than retail as an industry. We're about the global economy and institutions. I'm not sure how that really works brilliantly for me. I guess there's also another thing which I'll go into in one of my columns is um, do we need another club? There is a definite move towards, you know, disclosed and um, trading away from anonymous. Do we actually need another club? You know, do we need to sort of build something else at a time when the primary venues who are generally recognized to be, you know, good market environments are losing their volume. So we should see on that one. Uh, the other one was um, your next pre-trade tags. Um, I like this move. It's a, I think it's a positive move. What they've done is they've basically said the emphasis has changed. Um, the client's ID will no longer be disclosed to an LP unless the client specifically asked for it to be so. Previously, the client had specifically asked for it not to be so. Um, I guess it shows a bit of confidence on the part of the platform. that They think they can survive without having to protect the, the LP too much. I think also there's, there's a conduct issue here. Um, I'm not suggesting for a moment that, you know, most LPs would abuse the pre-trade pre -trade tag IDs. Unfortunately, we live in an environment where it needs just one. And if one abuses it, then we're all basically up the creek without uh, anything to paddle in, paddle with. So I think um, as long as it's well-policed and, you know, there's rules around tag refreshing and tag renaming and, and additional multiple tags. So as long as those are, are enforced, then I think we're okay. Um, the only observation I would probably make on is, you know, this is interesting that we are now starting to get this, this move um, towards greater transparency, less last look. It probably highlights how the, the buy side has now started to get vocal on last look with their platform saying, I don't like this liquidity. You know, they're happy to say it privately. Now they're saying, maybe saying it um, in, as part of their commercial relationships, um, on which basis all I can say is, Let's hope they do the same with pre-hedging. Um, that's it for this week. My apologies, you've had to listen for me, the whole thing. You'll be pleased to hear we've got some in, um, guests lined up for next week, but it was a busy week. So on that note, I will wish you a good week and thanks very much for listening.